Well, let's keep our Bibles open, and would you find the New Testament letter that goes by the name of James, James chapter 1. And our text this morning is just one verse, the opening verse in this letter bearing the name James, James 1, 1. And that word reads this way, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his people be richly blessed now by its proclamation. Well, this morning we're putting aside our journey through the Old Testament and the great events in the history of redemption to, to go into a summer series of messages on the epistle of James. And our design over the course of the next several weeks is to travel through this book written by this one named James. When I say the name James, or I say the epistle of James, many, many verses probably pop into your mind. You, you remember what follows next, where James talks about trials and tribulations and the necessity of meeting all of those with great joy in the Lord. And maybe some of you, maybe most of you will be thinking about the very difficult and somewhat controversial things John, or rather James, says about faith and about the, the association or the relationship between faith and works. He says there in that, that famous or infamous verse, chapter 2, verse 17, that faith, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead and many know the book of James because he seems to be saying something different than Paul says. And there are many other prominent themes in this letter that many of us know well, that the use of the tongue, James will spend a lot of time talking about how we use our tongues and how we care for one another, particularly those who are poor among God's people. And then James will have many, many strong things to say about the dangers of worldliness, about being seduced by the world, or, or maybe we could say being evangelized by the world so that we look more like the world than we do Christ. And then James has something to say about those who want to be rich. And then, of course, there's a word about suffering. But as we travel through the epistle of James in the next several weeks, we're going to note that there's another major theme of the book that often goes unnoticed, and that is the theme of wisdom, a wisdom that's a particular kind of wisdom. It isn't like the wisdom that we speak of uh, so commonly today, not the kind of wisdom that seems to circulate in the world today, the world that is opposed to the things of God, but the wisdom that actually comes from God. And James will frame his letter, as it were, upon the theme of wisdom. If you were to look up that word wisdom in, in this epistle, you would, you would see that James only uses it four times. And yet it seems to be the superstructure upon which he hangs the rest of the letter. Think about the things that James says about wisdom. In chapter 1, verse 5, uh, we know this one probably uh, most well of all. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, well, my hand's going to go up. <laughs> if any of you lack wisdom, 
Let him ask of God who gives generously to all who ask for it without reproach, and that wisdom will be given. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Who is really the wise among you? Who thinks he's really wise? And then he answers the question, By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, he contrasts the, the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. And he says, the wisdom that comes from above is a lot different than earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom, he says, is demonic. Well, that's rather abrupt, isn't it? Earthly wisdom is demonic, he says. And then in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says in radiant contrast to that, the wisdom that is from above is pure, it is peaceable, gentle, open to reason. It is full of mercy, it is full of good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so it just seems that James is very interested in the development of wisdom, a superior kind of wisdom that characterizes the kingdom of God. And if that's the case, if indeed that's the superstructure on which he hangs his epistle, could it be that James at least believes that one of the greatest needs of the body of Christ is wisdom, wisdom from above? Could it be that what James will teach us over the next hot summer months is that it requires wisdom to serve and please the Lord, and that no church and no believer could afford to ever be without wisdom. So as we engage in this journey this morning, let us ask the Lord to teach us to be wise and to, over the course of the next several weeks, reveal to us the pathway of true wisdom and then to empower our feet to walk on that pathway as we obey the Lord. Before we look at what James actually has written in this letter, there are there are some preliminary issues we want to deal with, and, and we might be tempted to run by these. We might be tempted to, to just plunge right into verse 2 because it seems that's where the action really starts, right? But I would submit to you there's a lot of action in the very first few things that James says that we find recorded in verse number 1. We want to know first who wrote this letter. Who is James? Because there's a lesson there about the author. And we not only want to know who wrote it, and we'll cover what he says a bit later, we want to know who wrote it, but we also want to know to whom it was written. Who are the addressees? And I think if we answer these questions this morning, we'll be well on our way to understanding his message and to capturing his vision for the church as a people who are wise in the Lord. Well, let's try to answer this first question. Who wrote this letter? Well, it seems apparent enough, doesn't it? Because like most first century letters, the author has listed his name at the very beginning. You know, typically we write the letter and we, we save as a surprise who it's from until the very end, you know. But in the first century, you put your name at the beginning. And so there's this name, James, simply James. No, no last name, no city designation, no other hint of who he may be, simply 
James. Now, we know that there were four prominent men in the New Testament who went by the name James, which would be the equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew name Jacob. Four Jameses in the New Testament. Well, the first obvious choice would be James, the son of Zebedee, one of the disciples, the brother of John. And some have suggested maybe he wrote this letter, but probably not, because we remember that this James, the disciple, was martyred by King Herod and probably didn't write this letter bearing the name James. And there was another disciple, though, named James. This was not James, the son of Zebedee, but James, the son of, Al- of Alphaeus. And he was also, as I said, a disciple of the Lord. He, he went by a nickname because he was very small. He was called James the Little or James the Less. His mother was Mary, one of the ladies that appeared there at the cross and would later appear at the empty tomb on the first Easter morning, but that's about all we know of James, the son of Alphaeus. He was a disciple who had a mother named Mary, and it's probably not the case that he wrote this letter. Many New Testament authorities would dismiss him as an option as to who wrote it. And then there was another James. Maybe you've not heard of this James. The father of Judas was named James. James. His name appears in Scripture. And you can probably conclude with most people it's not very likely that he wrote this letter. So who wrote it? Well, it leaves us a fourth option. Another James. And this is very important. This isn't just academic information about the the epistle to James. This is critical to understanding the message. There was another James. There was another James. And we, we see his name listed in Mark 6. In Mark 6, we have some information about the family of Jesus. Joseph and Mary were obviously the parents of our Lord. Jesus was the firstborn from the womb of Mary. But Joseph and Mary had other children. And we we see this confirmed in Scripture. In Mark chapter 6, we learn the names of the four younger brothers of Jesus. And listen to their names. The first one is James. And the second, Joseph, and the third, Judas, or Jude, and then Simon. And then there are his unnamed sisters. So Jesus had a whole family of younger siblings, and lo and behold, among the brothers of Jesus is a a man named James. Now this James, we know a lot about We know that this James was was not a believer in Jesus during his earthly ministry. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, would, would, would be among those who thought Jesus, his brother, had lost his mind. He was perhaps embarrassed that his brother Jesus was out there teaching and doing the things he did and making the claims he made. And so he was not a believer until he until he saw the Lord. And this James, the brother of Jesus, had an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. We learn this in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, where the Apostle Paul says that our Lord, our Lord after his resurrection, appeared to James, his brother, and then 
to all the apostles. And then that James, the brother of Jesus, believed in the Lord. And the same James, the brother of Jesus, appears in Acts chapter 1. He's in the upper room and he's gathered there with the other apostles, the other disciples. He's waiting for the descent of the Holy Spirit. And this James, the brother of Jesus, is, is there at Pentecost. And he sees and experiences the the outpouring of God's Spirit. And then this James becomes the leader of the mother church, the mother Christian church at Jerusalem. Peter's leadership will come to an end. James will step in his place, the very brother of Jesus. He will convene that great council of Jerusalem that we read about in the 15th chapter of Acts. He is clearly the leader of the Jerusalem church. We also know that this James was a man with an unusual nickname. The brother of our Lord was called the man with camel's knees. The man with camel's knees. And that's because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer for the saints that his knees showed the scarring of constant kneeling, a man of great Christian piety, a man of righteousness, a man who came to be known as James the Righteous, James the Righteous. In the epistle to the Galatian Christians, the apostle Paul mentions this James as one of the pillars of the church along with Peter and John. And so he was a blessed man. He was the brother of the Lord. And he is the only man, the only man that could have simply written the name James and everyone would know to whom it referred. James, the brother of Jesus. This is the only person that one simple name could refer to. He wrote the letter, James. But look at the way James speaks of himself as he introduces the letter. He simply says, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now viewed from the proper perspective, that is simply breathtaking to me. And let me show you why. By any measure, that is a most humble thing to say. James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What if your brother were Jesus? I mean, what if your brother, your biological brother, the brother that came from the same womb from which you came, what if he were the son of God? What would, you, what would you say about yourself? How would you describe yourself? I'm telling you what I would write. If I wrote the letter, it would be Mike, the brother, the biological brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, what do you think of that? I mean, it was true. He he was literally the the brother of Jesus. But we don't find that here. Look at the word we do find. 
Our English translations have very graciously rendered this word servant. Servant. Perhaps, more precisely, we would render it this way. Slave. Slave. That's the word. No doubt about it, that's the word. That, that's a, a word that, that circulated in the first century that referred to the very ordinary house slave. Throughout the first century Roman world, there were house slaves everywhere. They had no inherent dignity or honor. There was nothing significant attached to their, to their name or their title except that they just simply worked for someone in a very lowly, almost contemptible position. The first century slave or servant had no rights of his own. They were someone else's property. Uh, that's all there was to it. They, they didn't even have an identity they could claim for themselves. They belonged to someone else. They had no status except the lowest rung of the ladder. And so to use the word servant or slave would have been a most powerful expression of the kind of humility present in the heart of this man known as James, a slave, a slave, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as a passing note, the way James strings that phrase together, slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, makes it explicitly clear that he believed his brother was God in the flesh. An amazing, an amazing thing to say, especially given what's on the resume of James, the brother of Jesus. And he is simply a bond slave. He is a servant. He sees himself as one wonderfully, sovereignly, graciously, mercifully saved by his brother. He sees himself completely Loyal to this king, one who has surrendered to him, one who will obey with great speed and with unquestioning allegiance. He is simply the house slave of Jesus. When we read the Bible, we, we discover that James is not alone as a servant of God, and in, in calling himself a bond slave. In fact, that's something that many, many servants of the Lord did. Many, many believers in the Lord did throughout the history of Scripture. There, there are many great men and women of God who've gone by the designation servant or slave. Think about Abraham. He called himself the servant of God. Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Caleb and David all call themselves what James refers to himself as servant of Yahweh. And the prophets, Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi all refer to themselves in the way James does, simply the servant of God. And then the Apostle Paul, that's his favorite self-designation. Not Dr. Paul, not Professor Paul, not Missionary Paul, not writer of half the New Testament Paul, but simply Paul, the slave of Jesus. But there's another intriguing connection. You know who else? You know who else called themselves simply the slave of God? 
the mother of James, the mother of Jesus. The angel came to Mary with the incredible news that she would give birth to the Son of God. And do you know what Mary said? Listen to these words. Could it be that Mary taught James this lesson? Mary said to the angel who had just announced the greatest news ever to come to mankind, she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The very person, the very woman who gave birth to the Son of God considered herself only as the Lord's bond slave. Not one to be adored, not one to be worshipped, not one to be served, but herself a humble servant of the Most High God. And so James, her son, the brother of Jesus, also links himself to that faithful line of humble servants of Yahweh, servants of the King, who have no rights, who have no hope, who have no life, who have no possessions, They have only their king, and James is one of those, one of those special servants of the Lord who found their freedom, as one says, who found their freedom and their peace and their glory only in submitting to the will of God, whose only greatness was the greatness of their slavery to Jesus. So where do you find your identity? Who are you? Where is your freedom and your peace? To what kind of greatness are you aspiring? What do you boast in? What is it that you most desire? What is it that you want people to know about you? James would say, I am simply the slave of Jesus. But to whom was this letter Addressed. We, we know who wrote it. And now, who received it in the mail? Well, again, we're told. We're, we're, we're not left in, in, in a quandary about this. We, we simply read to the 12 tribes. But at once, there's some confusion because this is a Christian letter. I mean, this is clearly a letter written to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the same Lord that James believes in and serves. So so this is a Christian letter, and yet James, the brother of our Lord, identifies the recipients as the 12 tribes. And when we hear that, we know he's talking about Israel, right? Because we remember the 12 sons of Jacob. We remember the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it seems that James is using Old Testament terminology to identify the recipients of this new covenant letter. And so so what what is going on? And, And I think that you can answer that question, can't you? From the Garden of Eden, a story has been unfolding. And that story that begins in the Garden of Eden will take us all the way to the new Jerusalem. And as time has been going by in the history of redemption, the old covenant people have given birth to the new covenant people of God. 
that Old Testament nation, the chosen nation, Israel, the holy nation, that nation foreshadowed and prepared the way for the new covenant people of God to emerge in Jesus Christ the Lord. And so, in other words, when James says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, that is a reference to all the people who belong to God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, the 12 tribes, is a symbolic description of the new Israel, the church, which is composed of all believers in Christ, of all ages, despite their birth place, despite their ethnicity, despite their language or the color of their skin. The phrase 12 tribes speaks of all those whom Jesus has saved from Adam all the way to the last elect person who will be saved right before Jesus comes. The 12 tribes is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church. But maybe you want more verification of that. And we have it. We, we have, as we read the New Testament, we, we, we see the evidence that supports what we've just concluded. We, we see that the, that the church is the fulfillment of Israel. And that's why the New Testament uses Old Testament terms to speak of the church, to link the covenants, to show the one people of God, the one plan of salvation that is slowly, if not methodically, unfolding through the centuries. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 3, for example. He says, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith, that is, who are of faith in Christ, are blessed with Abraham the believer. Think about Philippians 3.3, 3, where the apostle Paul says, we the church, composed of Jew and Gentile. We are the true circumcision. It's an amazing claim. It's like calling the church the 12 tribes, like James does. Or think about what the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. You, the church, Christians, you are a chosen race. This is coming right out of the Old Testament. This is a quotation from the Old Testament that applied to Israel. And now Peter is saying, you, the church, are a chosen race, the royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are the people for God's own possession. And James is simply doing what every New Testament writer does. He is showing you the linkage God's unfolding plan has come to fulfillment in his church in Christ. The 12 tribes, that's the true Israel in Jesus Christ. The Israel of God. Now maybe we understand why Jesus just happened to choose 12 apostles. It wasn't by accident. And why Jesus commissioned those 12 apostles to go into the world and to preach to all nations and by the gospel to call out the new Israel, to call out the new 12 tribes, those whom he purchased with his blood 
This is why James says you're the 12 tribes. And then think of the last book of the Bible, the last letter written, written by the Apostle John. We call it the Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's that mysterious, that almost cryptic symbol for the church. He says the church, the church of Christ, they are the 144,000 redeemed. And you see what the Lord has done? 12 times 12,000, the fullness of God's redeemed people. Listen to Revelation 7. John says, I heard, I heard the number of those who were sealed, the number of those who received the Spirit of God, the number of those who, who received the stamp of God's ownership on their souls. The number was 144,000 from the tribes of the sons of Israel. This is what James is linking to. He's writing to the 144,000. That symbolic number that represents the covenant people in totality who've all been saved by grace in Jesus Christ. The letter is written to you, the true Israel, the new Israel. And when James wrote this letter, this may be, by the way, this may be the oldest book of the New Testament. It, it may be, another way to say that, it may be our earliest book. It may have been written even in the late 40s, maybe 15 years after the ascension of Jesus. And the Christians to whom James wrote were mostly Jewish. There were, there were Gentiles with them but he's largely writing to Christians who were once Jews, who heard the gospel, who believed that Christ was Lord, who repented of their sins and confessed his kingship, and they left their Judaism behind. And they left their ancestral traditions behind. And they embraced Christ as their Messiah and they left their families behind. And because of that radical departure from their past, they were sorely persecuted. And he's writing a letter to encourage them as the church of the Lamb, as the bride of Christ, as the very body of Christ to hold on and to serve him faithfully and to acquire godly wisdom so that they would be faithful to him. It's written to you. But not only are they, that is the recipients, depicted as the 12 tribes, but look at this interesting qualifying phrase. Those in the dispersion. One translation reads a bit differently. It says, to those dispersed abroad. Another way to read that is to say, it's written to the scattered, to the Christians, to the 12 tribes, to the new Israel, to the people of Christ who are scattered, who've been scattered throughout the world. You're dispersed. You've been uprooted. You've been flung out into the Roman Empire. The actual word dispersion, in fact, it's a word that we don't translate, we simply transliterate it. It's the word diaspora or dispersion. Technically, that word meant any 
Jew, or rather it referred to any Jew living outside of Palestine. He would be a Jew of the diaspora, of the scattered ones. But here James is not applying it to the Jews. He is applying it to Christians. He's writing to the scattered ones. Those scattered around the globe by persecution. They've confessed Christ. They're they're standing tall, believing in Jesus. They're suffering. They've been thrust out by the providential hand of God. And you need to get that. They have been flung out into the nations by the providential hand of God. They've been scattered throughout the Roman Empire into the heart, as one man describes, into the heart of a menacing and testing world. And as they fled persecution, you know what they did? They took the gospel with them. Can you see the wisdom of God? The enemy... Satan himself, who is bent on the destruction of the church, who is the the author of all persecution, he is trying to destroy the church. He is making them run. They had to leave Jerusalem. They had to leave Israel. They had to be be uprooted, and they, they couldn't take anything with them. They were scattered. And what Satan is doing to destroy the church, Jesus is doing to save the world. Through persecution, he is sending his people into the world with the gospel. And that's the way it always is. In our brief study, it's taken us almost two years already, but in our brief study of the great events in the history of redemption, you know, we've seen this pattern, haven't we? The Lord's people are always displaced, aren't they? They're in Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're in Israel. And then, lo and behold, the time of exile comes first in the 700s B.C., and again in the 500s B.C., and they are scattered into the nations. Some return and some stay. But most immediate to the history of James and this epistle was the incredible thing that happened when Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. You remember Stephen one of the leaders of the church at Jerusalem. And he began to preach to his culture, to his fellow Jews. And he preached an incredible message holding up the Old Testament as the word of God, as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he preached and he preached and he preached and they got madder and madder and angrier and hatred and murder swelled in their hearts and they, they executed Stephen on sight. And listen to what Luke says as he gives us a little slice of what was going on the day Stephen died. He says in Acts 8.1, on that day, on the day they killed Stephen, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Now, these are the people to whom James is writing, those who were again in exile They had to leave their home in Jerusalem, and they had to leave their jobs, and they had to leave their families and all their familiar surroundings, and they were thrust out by the hand of God to face, as one writes, the pressures 
and the persecutions of this life, struggling ever after to live in holiness amid the enticements of a pagan environment. The Lord did not let them remain safely in Jerusalem. He sent them into the world. And now, what will characterize their life, their lives, is what appears in verse 2. Trials and trials and trials and more trials and more trials. And this will be their lot. One has written this description. They will ever feel the weight of life's pressures, the lure of this world's temptations and the insidious, ever-present encouragement to conform to the standards of their pagan environment. But they are not there by accident. They are there by divine design. The Lord has scattered His people so that they will carry the gospel to that awful world that is lost and is in need of a Savior. A couple of decades later, after James writes these words, the Apostle Peter will begin writing his letters to the church, to the same people. And listen to what he says and compare it with what James writes. Peter begins his first epistle to those who are elect exiles, those scattered in the dispersion. And then he says to them these, these timely words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice. Can you hear the echoes of what James had written? He's going to say, count it a joy. Count it a joy when you encounter trials. And here his beloved friend, apparently, an apostle, certainly, Peter is writing the same thing. You've been scattered. You are his elect. He loves you, but he sent you there. You're going to suffer. You're going to be on trial, but rejoice. Why? And Peter gives the answer. You share Christ's sufferings. You've been called to live this way. You're suffering now, Peter says, so that later, when your Savior, when your Lord is revealed, you may rejoice. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you're on the outside of the Christian faith looking in, is that what you expected the Christian life to be about? Bowing a knee to the sovereign king who lived and died and rose again and becoming a slave and having no expectation in this life except to suffer 
and to be facing one trial after the next, one trial after the next, until Jesus comes. Is that what you thought the Christian life was all about? How many of us who are in the church and who are very familiar with the language of Christianity, how many of us understand that this is the real Christian life? You see, the book of James is written to real Christians who are living the real Christian life. And we live it as exiles. This is not our home. We cannot be too comfortable here. Because we don't belong here. We have been flung out into this world by God's sovereign designs so that we would carry the gospel to every place he scatters us. And it's hostile territory. It will cost us something to follow Jesus. We will share in Christ's afflictions and we will do it with joy and hope and peace, but there is no escaping the antipathy between us and the world. It is a message to real Christians, not pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by Christians, not casual Christians, not part-time believers, but real Christians who will face real opposition simply because Christ has claimed us and we have claimed Jesus. We have been deployed where we are purposefully and sovereignly. We are in exile. Because we're faithful to Christ, we will have tribulation. We will be persecuted. This is what Jesus said just before he left. You will have persecution in the world. And yet think of how God is glorified. He has thrown us out into the pressure cooker of this world so that our faithfulness under trial will be a testimony to the power of his transforming grace. That's to whom the letter is written. Christians facing the pressure of the emperor, the emperor's thumb, the emperor's heel, squashing them. Facing the pressure of hostile forces always wanting to conform them into its image. Always facing hostility simply because they bear the name of Jesus. And in that pressure cooker environment, the character of Jesus begins to swell up in the hearts of his people. The glory of his grace, the power of his joy, the reality of the gospel begins to glow. Now that's real Christianity. That's who the letter's written to. People like that. We're not at home here. Our citizenship is in another city. Our passport, if you were to look at it, doesn't say this world. It says the New Jerusalem. We are missionaries to this culture 
We are not indigenous peoples. We are missionaries from another culture, from another place, from heaven. We are ambassadors for another king. And may I say, and I say this just so I can hear it. Please forgive me. We are an ambassador for another king who is not at all worried about who will win the next election. And through our our troubles and struggles and trials, the glory of God's power, the beauty of Christ's character has It has a canvas upon which to be displayed. Isn't this what Jesus said? I'm sending you out into the world. I'm sending you among wolves, he said. He said that to you. He said, I'm sending you among wolves. You don't belong to that pack. You are of a different species altogether. I'm sending you among wolves. And I want you to glow with my glory and my love and my character and the hope of the gospel and joy. And when they kill you, I want you to let your dying breath be praise the Lord. Now that's real Christianity. To get there is going to require wisdom, isn't it? To get there, to live that way, to to think that way is going to require the reorientation of everything about us. Our thinking, our goals, our expectations, our self-image, our identity. And this book will do it. Because this book will teach us to think God's thoughts after him. The wisdom that comes from above. And by the strength that he supplies in his spirit... We can be real Christians, embracing a real gospel in the real world to the glory of the one to whom we function as simple slaves. Well, I can't wait to read the letter now. I wonder what he's going to say next. Well, you'll have to come back to find out. But let's ask God for wisdom. Let's ask God for strength.